This morning we'll be taken from the book of John, chapter 5, verse uh, 59, or 39, I'm sorry. John, chapter 5, verse 39. And while you're looking that up, I'd like to say welcome home, Tommy. And thank you. Thank you for serving our country. Okay, John 5, 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. I just scared the lights out of Josh Beck. I went back and I held my stomach and said, I'm feeling really sick, Josh. Can you take the pulpit for a minute? He's awake now, buddy, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I thought he's just going to take it, you know, and laugh. I came back by and he said, you scared me to death. <laughs> it's good to be with you this morning. It's good that so many people braved the weather this morning. I dare say I underestimated your faith, I guess, because I woke up and early and then it started snowing pretty good out at the house. And I said, oh, no, Lord, you know, I've got something good here I want you guys to get a hold of. And so uh, I'm really glad that so many people braved the uh, weather. The roads weren't too bad out my way. I, I know there were there were slick a little bit, but but it it was doable. So glad you're here. Glad to hear the chatter of the kids in the pews. I, I never fail to appreciate it when I hear it, and uh, I love it when my communion men that get up before the sermon share the gospel with you right off the bat at that time and and draw your minds into uh, reverence and appreciation for Jesus Christ. And uh, that, that allows me to come up and just reiterate, reinforce, reassure. And so I always encourage you to listen closely to the men. They do, they do a good job preparing us for that communion. And so this morning we're going to uh, continue on our track uh, of following the Word as he seeks to become flesh and dwell among men, John chapter 1. So we are in the Old Testament. For those of you who may be visiting, uh, we are, uh, as a congregation, reading through the Old Testament. We have reading plans in the, right outside the double doors that you can join in on. I've gotten good feedback that many are doing it. Uh, others have said that uh, they've received good feedback. A lot of you are doing it together, learning together. Um, uh, it doesn't seem to be too much, and there are. it's easy for you to jump into the readings because we're continuing to talk about it. So as opposed to trying a reading plan on your own through the year where you might get off track and not have the motivation to get back on, you'll at least be able to uh, jump in at any time or, or get, you know, re-enter at any time, and, and we'll be preaching ahead of the readings and there will be discussion the following week on the readings previous. And so that's kind of the plan. It seems to be going well. You can share feedback uh, of how to do it better. Uh, please do, because if this works well for the congregation to learn and to grow, um, then, then we may continue doing it into the following year through the Gospels and the life of Christ. And so we're waiting to get that kind of feedback. So as for now, uh, you should know that uh, we are in the section from about verses 30, uh, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 
38 through 47. I've been rounding them off and, and saying uh, uh, 31 through 40 and 41 through 50, but this week we're starting actually with a story that begins in chapter 37 and carries on through the end of Genesis into chapter 50. First, I want to take a minute and introduce, uh, teach, or, or reinform if maybe you've forgotten some things about this, the nature of of um, something like the story of Joseph. Maybe you're not aware of these things, but there are several ways that God has vision casted into the future from this time of old. He's, he's looked into the future and He's used the Scriptures to cast a vision. For example, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His coronation, and the church as well that He has left in His wake. Um, there are a couple of pictures here I pulled, out, I pulled down. I don't expect you to read that at all. I just wanted you to see the volume of scriptures here given in Holman's book of Bible charts and maps. These are only 113 of those 300 or so prophecies concerning Jesus. And if you look closely at the upper left-hand corner, you'll see how far we've come in the month of January, covering Genesis. So we're really just scratching the surface of the power of God, of the desire of God to teach men and prepare men for the coming of Jesus Christ before He ever got here. And so this is about five highlights that we've hit of 113 on this, this uh, chart of about 300 total, uh, arguably give or take. And so uh, we're really seeing here God's desire to teach man about the coming Lord. Let's talk about foreshadowing or casting a shadow uh, before uh, a real thing, like such as a tree. There's several ways which God casts these visions of Christ in the Old Testament Scripture. One is simply predictive prophecy. We often refer to it as prophecy. But there's predictive prophecy specifically. Not all prophecy is predictive. Some is just forthtelling, where God says, go and tell my people this. And it may not have anything to do with the future, but very much so the present or the past. But foretelling, telling something aforehand, is definitely something that he is using. We saw a couple of cases of that in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of woman would bruise your head in the future. Satan, you'll be overcome by someone who comes from the woman, her offspring. We saw that in Genesis 12, and verse 3 specifically, that in Abraham, future tense, all the nations or families of the earth will be blessed. And so he prophesies there generally, but it gets specific as we go. That's another thing about the nature of that chart as you go down through all these prophecies. They tend to become more and more detailed. And so we're really just beginning. Uh, I hope you're excited about seeing some of these things. Uh, another type of foreshadowing is type antitype. And the word 
Uh, tupos in the Greek is type, and it does mean to bear an image or a striking resemblance to something. Jesus is called in the Hebrew letter the express image of God. And if you've ever seen the old typewriters, I mentioned, I think, last week or sometime recently, that when you'd strike one of those keys, the tooth would come up, the reality of the thing, where the actual image was, was on it, and strike the paper and leave the reflection of that tooth on the paper. And they look just alike when you compare them. I mean, that's the idea, right? They look just alike, but one is in reality, other is just an image of that tooth. And that's the word uh, that we're using when we talk about typology or Joseph being a type of Jesus who would be the antitype. He would be the reality. Joseph would be the image of him. And so we're going to talk about him today. A third thing would be uh, the actual word foreshadowing or uh, reflecting upon the future. It could be a person, it could be a place, or it could be an event. That's what PPE is up there. Persons, places, events. So not just with Jesus, but with things. Okay? And with events. But we should know that all of these things are intended to point to Jesus Christ. The theme of the Bible, the redemption of man through Jesus Christ, all of these things point to Him. So when you look at this tree and you see the shadows of it, Imagine these being prophecies, types like the story of Joseph. That might be one branch, okay? Uh, foreshadowing events that will, that will find their fulfillment in reality in the New Testament or in Jesus. These are all these shadows, and they all point to the reality of the thing. But we're back here right now in the Old Testament. We're seeing prophecies, types, and shadows and when you look at those, you might even be able to, if you're kind of a, a, an astute um, uh, student of, of plant life, what's the word for the study of plants? Botany. If you're a, if you're a botanist at all, uh, you might be able to tell what kind of tree that is even from looking at the shadow. Or if you've got a real detailed look at the bark, you might be able to tell what kind of actual tree's coming. And that's the closer you get to the tree, the clearer it gets until finally the reality is here. The substance, as the New Testament calls Christ. He's the substance that we're after. And so there's just a, a, a reminder slash introduction, if you've never heard this type of uh, talk, that I think is really important as we talk about Joseph being a type of Christ. Of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament which prefigure Jesus, we look to Isaac, and some of you tearfully said that was powerful. I had never seen that before in the Old Testament. Most people say that Joseph is even more of a striking comparison, a type of Jesus than that. Some scholars have found over 60 comparisons to Jesus. Over 60, of which we're going to talk about 41 today as I simply narrate the story of Joseph and of Jesus. 41 will be couched in this story that I tell you. See if you can pull them out with me. But of all of those, Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob, could be the most vivid portrayal of the Lord's life and salvific work that we have in the Old Testament. According to Jewish tradition, incidentally, 
the Jews refer to the Messiah, not only being the Messiah of David, but they have a term they refer to Jesus as the Messiah of Joseph as well. And so he's very powerful in their minds as a, as a foreshadowing of Jesus. Joseph's a young man who was hated and betrayed by his brethren, sold into bondage and left for dead. But after a dramatic turn of events, he vaults into a position alongside Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as a premier world power in his day, second only to Pharaoh. And he gets the chance to again confront his betraying brothers, whom we'll refer to when we talk about Jesus as his brethren. Jesus' brethren would be the uh, comparison here to Joseph's brothers. Yet, rather than seeking vengeance, this is Joseph's attitude. Joseph tells them at the close of this story, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order that He might bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Let's talk about the story of Joseph. Joseph is introduced in Genesis chapter 37 as a shepherd of his father Israel's flock. He is the beloved son of Jacob, and his father gave him preeminence among all his brethren. And he showed it to him by clothing him with a beautiful outer garment made of many colors, which would no doubt refer to it also being many materials of fine um, and desirable make. But Joseph's brothers hated him. Because, first of all, he witnessed against their evil deeds out in the field, their lack of faithfulness to their father and their evil deeds. He witnessed back home to his father of these things. So they, they found out. Dad got on them. Well, how do you find out? Well, who's the runner here? Joseph. They hated him because of it, and also because he, tell, he told them, like you'd expect a young, excited kid to do, a little brother, he told them of some dreams he was having where they would bow down to him, even his father and mother. Well, that irked him, to say the least. And so he's having these dreams, and they hated him for it. And as a consequence, the brothers plotted to kill Joseph. Genesis 37, 18, but instead stripped him of his clothes and settled for selling him for the price of silver. And he was led away to become a slave of men. He was separated, therefore, from his father for a time. They then took his coat, that multiple colored coat, a beautiful garment, and killed one of the flock, a goat, and dipped it in the blood and took it home and presented the case that they had found this garment. Is it your son's? And left Jacob to the conclusion that his son must have been devoured out in the field on one of his trips out to check on his brothers at his dad's hand and, and killed by wild animals. And he was left to bereave his son as though he were dead. 
And then, figuratively speaking, they washed their hands of him and went on. In Egypt, Joseph was sold to the captain of the guard, Potiphar, captain of Pharaoh's army. And he served as a faithful servant in his house and gained the trust of Potiphar to where Potiphar elevated him to be head over his household. But when he resisted the temptation of the seduction of Potiphar's wife, she, laying hold of his garment, and turned on him because she was rejected and told her husband, he came on to me. And here's his cloak to prove it. He wound up in prison. He wound up in prison, condemned with two other prisoners, one of which would live to serve Pharaoh and the other of which would die. And he foretold of their dreams in prison about this thing. He interpreted them and Pharaoh heard later from this butler who was restored to his position that Joseph could interpret Pharaoh's dream that he had that was haunting him. He didn't understand a disturbing dream he had. And so he calls for Joseph. And Joseph interprets the dream concerning a drought, a famine that was to come, following seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And it says Pharaoh saw that the Spirit of God was in him. And he elevated him at that very time to his right hand, even in a single day, Genesis 41. Upon his exaltation to the right hand of Pharaoh, Joseph was given a linen garment, a fine linen garment and a golden necklace. And everyone bowed the knee before him. And then Pharaoh gave Joseph a bride who to him would be a Gentile bride for his wife. During those years, Joseph was given all power in Egypt. And when the years of drought finally came, after seven years, the famished people of that land and of all the regions around came to Pharaoh for food, who told them, go to Joseph, and whatever he tells you, do it. And because the famine was severe, Joseph sold bread to all of the hungry people of the earth that were suffering from this famine. In those years, Joseph's brothers came to him from Palestine, from Canaan. His own brothers came to him to buy bread. And Joseph, recognizing them in his wisdom, tested them, bringing to their remembrance all that they had done against him without them knowing who he was. Nonetheless, he still shared a feast with his brothers before he was seen in his full glory. On their first visit to Egypt to see Pharaoh and to receive this food, they did not recognize Joseph. But all was revealed when they met the second time. And in mercy and grace, Joseph disclosed his full nature to them calling the eleven sons of Jacob close to himself that he might embrace them in forgiveness and peace. And Joseph told them that they should comfort themselves and not be troubled. For what they had intended for evil, God had meant for good, 
that he was sent ahead of them in God's overriding and umbrellic vision to go to Egypt to preserve people alive, even his own brethren. He came to understand the will of God for himself and how they fit into it, and he realized that that evil deed actually turned out to be for the salvation of his brethren, and he explained it to them with grace and with tenderness and promised that if they would return to him, he would prepare a safe place for them, that he would care for them, and that he would give them the dwelling places in the best portions of all the land of Pharaoh. As the story comes to a close, at the command of Pharaoh, Joseph did send for Jacob and all his household to be ushered into Egypt with a great caravan and chariots being provided by Pharaoh himself, carts and chariots for his family, that they might dwell together with him in that rich land of Goshen. And in spite of all he had suffered, Joseph was made a fruitful bough in Egypt, who nourished all who came to him and saved them from certain death. In a nutshell, that's the story of Joseph. There are 41 things I highlighted there. And if you'll bear with me now, even follow eagerly with me, I hope, I want to share with you what it means that Jesus Christ is the antitype of Joseph and that Joseph foreshadowed his glorious nature. Jesus taught, as in our scripture reading, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. And again, he said, for if you had believed Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, from which we're studying right now, if you'd believed him, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses wrote about Jesus, Jesus said. Well, we'll now see that part of Scripture, namely this story of Joseph and the events surrounding his life, are indeed an uncanny testimony of the coming Lord and Savior, and that nearly 1,900 years later. God's excited to predict the coming of His Son. Jesus Christ, in John chapter 10, claims to be the good shepherd of His Father's flock. He was beloved of His Father, Matthew 3.17, and His Father granted Him preeminence above all men, and He's clothed with a rainbow of many colors, Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. But Jesus' Jewish brethren hated Him because He testified before His brethren and before His Father that their deeds were evil, John 7, 7. And because He foretold of the day when all men would bow down to Him, John 5, 25 through 29. As a consequence, his brethren tried to kill him, John 8, 59. But they found others, rather, who would strip him of his garments, Matthew 27, 31, the Romans, namely. And for the price of silver, Matthew 26, 15, would be led away, John 19, 16, to become the slave of men, Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. On the cross of Calvary, He was separated from His Father, Matthew 26, 
2746. So in heaven, John sees him wearing a coat dipped in blood upon his horse of victory. Revelation 19.13, though men had washed their hands of him, namely Pilate, Matthew 27, verse 24, and all the Jews who said, let his blood be on our hands and upon our head and our children's. But although Jesus was faithful, a faithful servant in his father's house, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and resisted the succumbing to temptation, though he was tempted at all points, as we, as men are, Hebrews chapter 2, 18 and chapter 4, verse 15, he was without sin. He was falsely accused by lying men, Matthew 26, verse 60. He was condemned alongside two other prisoners, one of which would go on to serve his king in glory and be restored, the other of which would die in his sin, Luke 23, 39 through 43. After his suffering, the Spirit of God was yet upon him, 1 Peter 3.18, and through a resurrection of the dead, he was exalted above his brethren and the whole world and was seated at the right hand of God, Hebrews 1.4. God having clothed him in fine linen, Revelation 19.14, with a golden sash about his chest, Revelation 1.13. Witnesses will bow before Him, even all men, those who even crucified Him and pierced Him, Colossians 2, 9-11. And God gave Him a bride from the Gentile nations. Revelation 21, 9. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. And when people from any nation come to God for spiritual nourishment, the Father tells them, Matthew 17, 5, Hear Him. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, I've spoken in the times past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days I'll speak to you by my Son. Hear Him. He's given that authority, second only to the Father. Because there is a spiritual famine on the earth, Jesus shares the bread of life, His body, of which we partook, with all who come to Him, John 6, 51. And when His own brethren didn't recognize Him, John 1, 5 through 13, Jesus in wisdom tested them, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And sharing a feast with His brethren, John 13, 1, offered His bread even to His betrayer. Verse 26. Over and over, His own disciples stood before the Lord of glory, but they did not comprehend who it was before whom they were standing. Matthew 28, 17 and Luke 24, 41. Yet in patience and mercy, He disclosed Himself to them, Luke 24, 36 through 40, allowing them to see and touch Him after being raised in power, John 20, 26 through 28. He told them not to fear and to believe in Him, Luke 24, 25, and 6, and that though His brethren meant evil toward Him, God meant it for good, Luke 24, 46, and 7. For God had sent Him ahead 
to prepare a safe place for them where there would hunger no more, and he would give to them dwelling places in the best of the land of God. John 14, 1 through 3. And so at God's command, Jesus called for the house of Jacob and all of the house of Israel, all of those who are of faith, to come and dwell together in that land with him, Matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty, and Luke twenty four forty six through forty seven. In spite of all his sufferings, Jesus was made a fruitful vine, John fifteen one, who nourishes all who come to him to save them from certain spiritual death. Mark sixteen sixteen. Are you surprised by this? Are you captivated by God's omniscience that He can know all things ahead that, of His omnipotence that He can work to bring this about as He sees it and His Word will not return to Him void in spite of all of the unfaithfulness of His own children, Israel. He spared and saved and kept because he said to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed and I'm going to keep my promise. And he brought about Jesus Christ from that lineage of the Jews. Through Abraham, through David, and when you read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, now you know why there's a genealogy that greets you when you read the first chapter of the New Testament. What otherwise used to seem boring to me, why would he start off with a genealogy? I don't want to read this one, get into the details. He's saying to you, here's the power of my forecasting vision. Only God can see the future, and I want to present to you the one whom I promised from the book of Genesis into your midst. And so the story of the birth of Jesus Christ ensues in Matthew 1.18. The Old Testament is saturated with this anticipation of the coming Christ. He came. He dwelt among men. He was crucified because He brought the truth with Him from above and testified, and we were found sinful. He was raised in glory by the power of God and the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, and He's coming back, and the New Testament is likewise full of the anticipation of His return. Just as the Old Testament is chock full of pictures of His coming, so we read the New Testament and see the glory of His return. His second coming, as we call it. Now I would like to ask you a personal question. Are you anticipating His return with eagerness? As was Paul, who said, I'm longing for His return with all those who are longing with me. Are you fearing His return? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And when you learn perfect love, it'll cast out fear. When you learn to listen to me as the Son of God, your fears dismantle, will disseminate, and you'll only be able to think of the glory that lies ahead. Do not fear. Don't, don't be afraid. For I have overcome the world. Those who believe this will change their lives. 
you can't not change your life if you truly believe this. That is the point. <laughs> That's the point. God wants us not just to do better or to be good, but now He wants us to become like Jesus, an express image of Him who is an express image of His Father. You see, it's more than just checklist religion that we're doing here. We are trying to become like Christ. And as Anthony so wisely pointed out, not just appease Him, but please Him as our Heavenly Father. As Jesus said, I always please Him. That is what we should be anticipating. That great welcome in to that land of Goshen, if you will, the best of the realm of God to be ours. That's what He promised. And you have testimony before you today that He meant this from a long time ago for us to get it, understand it, and to anticipate it, to believe it, and to live it. If you are one who has not responded, arise. We'll sing this song. Come and be baptized into Christ. Be clothed with Him as He's clothed in glory. And don't let another day go by without Him. He is our Lord of glory. Let's stand and sing this song.